I thought this was going to be a fun, just quick story about the British powerboat racer known as the fastest woman on water. I ended up accidentally stumbling upon a much deeper story. The life of Joe Carstairs on the surface appears fantastic. She was a rich heiress. She inherited millions upon millions. She was a playboy, a gender nonconformist, had affairs with actresses, won trophies, bought her own island, which she ran almost as if it were her own country. But underneath all that varnish was struggle. Joe's childhood was far from idyllic. Her sexuality was met with intolerance, and she experienced an oppression even her money could not buy her way out of. She became so insular emotionally that the only thing she eventually ever expressed any real vulnerability to was a doll. Born in 1900, Joe Carstairs was known in the early 20th century for being a bit odd and for racing boats. But there's so much more to her story than that. Joe's life is such a colorful tapestry that what I thought I could easily cover in one episode ended up becoming two. She was an eccentric, a product of her time hardened by the social expectations placed upon her, and her struggle not to bend to them. So this isn't just a story about a woman who broke records and pioneered her way into a sport. It's a story about a unique life that was pushed to the edge in so many ways. A life that remains obscure on the periphery of history, because the books generally don't remember people like Joe. So let's remember her now and discover the unique and relentlessly interesting life of Joe Carstairs, the fastest woman on water. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The primary source I used for this series was a book written by author and journalist Kate Summerscale called The Queen of Whale Key. I couldn't have researched this thoroughly without Summerscale's biography. Originally, she found out about Joe Carstairs when she wrote Joe's obituary in 1993. After discovering old newspaper clippings about boat races and speed records, she became curious about who this person was then came upon some tapes Joe had made, talking about her life. Greatly intrigued, Summerscale interviewed surviving friends and family, then completed her biography in 1997. It's a good read, though it was written almost 30 years ago, so it has some verbiage that is a bit outdated now. Also, at least in my interpretation of the book, it seems like the author was pushing the angle that Joe wanted to be a boy. Not a man, but a boy specifically. To be a young, male, Peter Pan kind of a boy. And without Joe around to tell us what she wanted, I don't know if we can make that assumption. Joe did say she was a lesbian and that she came out of the womb queer, so that we do know for sure. It's possible Summerscale was correct in her interpretation and I have zero issues with how anyone identifies 
I just don't think it's fair to make assumptions on Joe's behalf since she isn't here anymore to advocate for herself. Other than those issues I personally had with this book, it was a good read, and it came out at a time when most authors wouldn't even have touched a story about someone from the LGBTQIA community. So it is worth a read if you're looking for something to add to your summer reading list. With that, let's get into the story. Jo was British, but her money was American. It was her grandfather, Jabez Abel Botswick, who created the family fortune. Born in Delhi, New York in 1830, he was John Rockefeller's treasurer for the Southern Improvement Company. According to Summerscale, Joe's grandfather and his cohorts dominated the American oil and railroad industry by creating a monopoly. They achieved this by buying out most of the rival oil speculators in the most promising areas. Then they drove oil prices down by securing huge rebates from local railroad companies, which they secured by threatening to take their business away. These low prices drove other oil companies out of business, which further secured their monopoly and made them all massively wealthy. Many saw this as a corrupt and underhanded way to make a fortune, and in 1897, the Grand Jury of Clarion County, Pennsylvania brought an indictment for conspiracy against Rockefeller and Joe's grandfather Botswick, but it inevitably came to nothing. Although the fortunes of those who garnered their extensive wealth through the Standard Oil Company were marred in reputation in certain circles, considered by many to be dirty money, and this reputation would follow Joe Carstairs' family around, at least through the early 1900s. According to Summerscale, in 1902, a highly critical piece was published in McClure's magazine denouncing those involved in the company, including Joe's grandfather. And in 1905, a congressional church refused a donation from his partner John Rockefeller, with its Reverend Washington Gladden stating this, quote, Is this clean money? Can any man, can any institution touch it without being defiled? In the cruel brutality with which properties are wrecked, securities destroyed, and people in the hundreds robbed of their little, all to build up the fortunes of the multimillionaires, we have an appalling revelation of the kind of monster that a human being may become." Unquote. Sullied reputation or no, Botswick bought a large five-floor townhouse on Fifth Avenue in New York with a view of Central Park, and he continued to amass a huge fortune. His wife, Helen, known as Nellie, was Joe's grandmother, and the only person in her family Joe would ever really show admiration or affection for. Nellie had a reputation as a fierce, unyielding woman, and Joe seemed to admire that strength. Joe remarked about her grandmother, quote, I thought everything she did was marvelous. Her grandfather met his end in a fire in 1892 when he was trying to rescue some horses from a stable fire, though rumors circulated he was trying to save his favorite carriage, not the horses, when he accidentally hit his head on a wall, fell unconscious, then died in the fire. Upon his death, he left his family $10 million. In an age where we have multi-billionaires hoarding most of the wealth, $10 million doesn't seem like that much money. 
But in 1892, that was a massive fortune. It would be the equivalent today of just over 321 million U.S. dollars. He and his wife Nellie had three children, an eldest daughter, also named Nellie, who would die at the young age of 38 in 1906, a son, Albert, who died in 1911 at 33, probably of a drug overdose, and Evelyn, the middle child, who was the mother of Joe Carstairs. Joe's mother, Evelyn, was complicated. From the descriptions of her that survive, she seems to have been a mother who didn't want to be a mother. Joe, who was always reticent to admit any kind of vulnerability, remarked that, quote, I've never been frightened of anybody except my mother, unquote. Evelyn was born in 1872 into great wealth. By 18, she was showing horses and already experimenting with drugs. Drug and alcohol abuse would be a lifelong battle for Evelyn. She would marry four different times. Three of those marriages would end in divorce. First, she married Joe's father, Captain Albert Joseph Carstairs, at age 20. He was a Scotsman, and their marriage took place two months before the death of Joe's grandfather. The marriage lasted ten years. After their divorce, Joe's mother effectively erased Albert from memory. Joe herself had very little knowledge of her father. She knew he served in Egypt in the 1880s and in Malta in 1891. It's unclear where Evelyn and Albert lived when they were married. Evelyn had numerous affairs, and Joe wasn't born until they had already been married for eight years. They divorced soon after Joe was born, and Albert seemed to make no attempt whatsoever to keep in touch with his daughter. When it came to Joe, he just wasn't interested. In fact, he re-enlisted with the army the week before she was born, effectively abandoning her before he ever even saw her. Author Kate Summerscale speculates that perhaps Albert didn't think Joe was his, but we have no way of knowing that for sure. What we do know is that Joe's father removed himself from her story before it even started. Her surname was the only thing her father would ever give her. Joe was born on February 1st, 1900, in London. Her given name was Marion Barbara Carstairs, she would later change it to Joe, though her reasons for choosing the name Joe remain obscure and unknown. However, it is interesting that her father's middle name was Joseph. That would have been one of the few things she did know about him. Joe loved London. It's where she was born, and though her money and her mother were both American, and she would visit her grandmother in the States, she would identify as British. When Joe was three years old, her mother married her second husband, a British army captain named Francis Francis. Yes, he had the same name twice. The pair had a son and a daughter named Evelyn and Francis, though they would go by Sally and Frank. Joe would not develop that strong of a relationship with either of her half-siblings. Very early on in her life, she was left by her father. Her mother was never emotionally available, and she knew she was different right away. 
She said of herself, quote, I was never a little girl. I came out of the womb queer. She didn't fit into the box everyone was always trying to put her in. She would be abandoned and left out and made to feel unwanted socially and emotionally with increasing frequency as she grew, and she would put up walls as a defense. For Joe, vulnerability meant pain, and she knew the more she let people in, the more it would hurt when they inevitably left her. It was a painful, lonely way to grow up. She developed a tough guy persona, which she stuck to for the rest of her life, though her friends would later speak of her heart and generosity, and she would financially take care of many of her friends for the remainder of their lives. I've said before on this podcast that I'm not qualified to psychologically profile another human being, and that is still true. It just seems like, from what I've read and based on the things she said and what she went through, Joe had a huge heart. She just got tired of it breaking. Her new stepfather did not approve of his new stepdaughter. He wanted to, in Joe's words, cure her of her masculinity. Once, when she was eight years old, Captain Francis Francis caught her stealing one of his cigars. He made her sit in his study and smoke an entire cigar, thinking she would get incredibly sick and this would teach her a valuable lesson. However, Joe, who had been secretly smoking his cigars for quite some time already, sat there and easily smoked her way to the end. The marriage didn't last. Evelyn again had many affairs, and the couple divorced in 1915, though the marriage had soured long before then. Francis kept both Frank and Sally. He would hide them in the attic if Evelyn and Joe came to visit. Even if Joe had wanted to develop a relationship with her brother and sister, the opportunity to do so would end with the marriage. Once, her mother kidnapped her brother and sister, taking them back to America to her grandmother Nellie's house, until her mother inevitably became bored with them. Evelyn continued to struggle with both alcohol and drug abuse. This made her personality unpredictable. One minute she would be charming, the next terrifying, the next completely incoherent, the next glazed over and totally vacant. Joe had to live with this unpredictability from an early age. Her mother was emotionally abusive, and although she didn't seem to have much interest in Joe, she didn't want anyone else developing a relationship with her daughter. Once, she even fired a nanny because she felt she and Joe had developed too strong of a bond. In this way, she kept Joe emotionally isolated, and in a way, this isolation would stay with Joe her entire life. As an escape, Joe would sail on a small dinghy or small boat near Southampton. She'd take some crackers and some water and go out sailing. These outings of solitude were some of the only happy childhood memories she could recall. This was the start of her lifelong fascination with boats. On the water, she was safe. On the water, she was free. On the water, the girl who had been given the name Marion got to be Joe. At age 11, she was sent away to boarding school in the U.S. For a lot of kids, being sent thousands of miles away from their family at such a vulnerable age would seem like a terrifying ordeal. 
For Joe, it was a liberating experience. She went to the Low Haywood Boarding School in Connecticut. It was an all-girls school, and Joe loved it so much that she was afraid her mother would write and make her come home. But her fears were unfounded. She only saw her mother once while she was in boarding school, and that was in 1915, when her mother married her third husband, the French Count Roger de Perigny. This was the only man her mother ever married that Joe adored. That's probably because this was the only man her mother married who didn't resent Joe for being herself. He treated her the way he would have treated a son, which was something Joe loved. He let her drive his race car, gave her cigars, and never made her feel like she was wrong for being who she was. He just let Joe be Joe. That was a rare validation for her. However, this was also the only man who would ever leave her mother. Both of them would have affairs, and this time, he would leave her before she could leave him. Joe had grown to greatly admire Roger, someone who had given her the freedom to be herself, which must have felt like the greatest gift. Yet he, too, ended up leaving her. Sometimes, Joe would stay with her grandmother Nellie, who still lived in New York. Nellie was the undisputed matriarch of the family, and when World War I hit, Joe begged her grandmother to let her go to war. Nellie used her influence to get the now 16-year-old Joe a job with the American Red Cross, driving ambulances in France. She arrived in Paris just before the U.S. joined the conflict. Her mother Evelyn was living in Paris at the time with a chihuahua, as she was between husbands. Joe rented an apartment with four other ambulance drivers. Paris was heavily shelled while Joe was there. She saw people bleeding in the streets, houses toppled, she pulled bodies out of wreckage, hauled soldiers both dead and alive in her ambulance, and saw the ugly, awful destruction left by the Great War. But for all the horror she would encounter, France would play an integral part in Joe's life journey. Paris is where Joe had her first sexual encounter. It's also where she had an affair with Dorothy Wilde. That's the niece of Oscar Wilde. According to Summerscale, Dorothy was the only member of Oscar Wilde's family to still bear his name after his death. The social backlash against him after he was imprisoned for homosexuality was so great, his two sons took their mother's name of Holland. Not Dorothy, though. She was proud of her uncle, and proud to bear his name. Though her affair with Joe would ultimately end, Joe greatly admired Dorothy, and she had a big impact upon the young Joe. Both Paris and Dorothy were part of Joe's coming-of-age story. In Paris, she would grow up a great deal and begin to blossom into her own person with a freedom she had never been given before. Joe never mentioned how she and Dorothy parted. Wilde was diagnosed with breast cancer later in 1939, and in 1941, at the age of 45, was found dead in a hotel room in London. The coroner, who labeled her a spinster, said he could not determine her cause of death, but it could have been related to either her cancer or to drug usage. Joe would lose a lot of people she loved to drugs. 
While Jo was in Paris, so was her mother, Evelyn. Evelyn was working as a laboratory assistant to the Russian surgeon Sergei Voronov. She was rich enough not to have to work, so this was something she was choosing to do. The two of them, Evelyn and Voronov, presented a paper in 1918 to the French Academy of Science, which was the first in a series of wild claims they would make about the healing properties of testicular pulp. That is exactly what it sounds like it is. The claims they made would be met with skepticism, and for good reason. They would all be proven false, eventually. But Voronov and Joe's mother Evelyn would make unproven claims about their experiments for several years. In their 1918 paper, titled Intensive Acceleration of the Healing of Granulating Wounds by the Application of Testicular Pulp, they described how they put pulp from different ground-up glands onto animal wounds. They claimed the wounds that had testicular pulp applied to them healed much more quickly. This was untrue. Wounds don't heal faster when you put ground-up testicles into them. It's unclear if they knew they were incorrect, if they were unaware they were incorrect, or if they were misinterpreting their results somehow. But in any event, their experiments continued and became more intense. The two married in 1920, giving Evelyn a fourth husband and Voronov all the financial backing he could ever want to carry out his experiments. Voronov eventually began grafting portions of young ram testicles onto those of older rams, claiming this increased the virility of the older animals, which then gave him the idea that he should try this with humans. The scientific world was skeptical, and no one wanted to grant him funding. But since Evelyn the heiress had married him, finding money was not an issue. Voronov began grafting ape testicles into humans. Six slices of an anesthetized ape's testicle were sewn into a human man's scrotum. This surgery was done twice in 1920. Both times, it was disastrous and led to infection. The grafts had to be removed. Despite this, Voronov and Evelyn continued their work, claiming success and miraculous results. Voronov published a lot of material claiming that grafting ape testicles into human male scrotums could rejuvenate old men, which is why he had so many volunteers and interest in his experiments. Eventually, he fell out of favor with the scientific community after the claims he made proved to be untrue. Joe had nothing to do with her mother's experiments, and she never seemed to discuss it much. However, Joe did have some strong feelings about Voronov. She did not like him. She found him suspicious, which we'll get to in just a bit. And she also had, during the time of these experiments, a terrible confrontation with her mother. It was in 1918 that Joe's mother confronted her about her sexuality, which did not go well. Evelyn told Joe that if she didn't marry a man, she would be disinherited. To appease her mother, she offered to split the $10,000 dowry with a man named Jacques Depret. 
That's the equivalent of just over $200,000 today. Jacques agreed to marry Joe, and the two split immediately after the wedding. Their marriage was annulled right after her mother's eventual death, on the grounds that the marriage was never consummated. Jacques was an interesting choice for Joe, and probably a deliberate one, as Joe believed he was one of her mother's many lovers. If her mother was going to force her to marry, well, then she was going to bribe one of her mother's boyfriends to play the part. The marriage was purely for Joe, a way to ensure Joe would receive her inheritance. It took place in 1918. Something else happened on the world stage that year. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, the Great War ended. As millions of soldiers made their way home, and millions more were being buried, Joe began to search for a new battlefield. She had liked serving during the war, and now that it was over, she wanted to find more action. Her marriage was a farce, she had no family she was close to. Aside from her grandmother, no one in her family had shown any interest in her, nor she in them, so embarking on a new horizon at the age of 18 seemed like a good idea. She joined the Women's Legion Mechanical Transport Section in Dublin. This was a group of women who served as drivers to British officers, most of whom were combating Irish forces who were fighting against British occupation and for Irish independence. Joe was in Ireland between the Easter Rising of 1916 and Bloody Sunday, which took place in 1920. Tensions in Ireland at this time were high. Despite this, Joe didn't recount any incidents where she found herself in any danger. Mostly, she remembered things like poker games and practical jokes. A few of the women she rode with had cut their hair short, a style that was growing more popular in cities. It was here Joe cut her hair, and even when short hair fell out of style, she never grew it back. In 1919, Joe left Ireland and returned to France with a couple friends she had made along the way. One of those friends, a woman named Bardi, would become a lifelong friend of Joe's, and Joe would provide her with an income for the rest of her life. Joe was extremely generous to her friends. In France, the women volunteered as drivers, clearing battlefields. They hauled supplies, they buried the dead, because they were still dead. To bury, and they helped to reconstruct towns. Joe ended her service on April 23, 1920. Four days later, her grandmother died. Nellie Botswick outlived her husband and two out of three of her children. She survived five strokes, and in the end, it was a heart attack that did her in. She was 77 years old when she died in New York, she left behind a fortune of $30 million. That's the equivalent of just over $442.5 million today. It would take around three years for her grandmother's will to be settled. During that time, Joe claimed she was penniless. However, this was not entirely true. Joe was always colorful in the way she described the events of her life. According to Summerscale, Joe's grandmother had set up two trust funds for her, 
This may have even been done in response to Joe's mother's threat to disinherit her because of her sexuality. If so, the trust funds were a way for Nellie to financially protect Joe until her will was eventually settled. In 1921, Joe had an income of $145,000. That's well over two and a quarter million dollars today. The next year, that increased to $200,000, which would be well over $3 million today. Maybe when you're used to hundreds of millions of dollars, two and three million might make you feel penniless. I honestly can't say. But Joe's claims of poverty after her grandmother's death were definitely exaggerated. It's almost like she wanted to have to fend for herself in a way. She obviously didn't have to work but she chose to take a position as a bartender for a time. Then she worked on a chicken farm. She lived in a caravan or a trailer and stole food sometimes, earning herself the nickname Klep, short for kleptomaniac. She seemed to be creating a narrative for herself, either knowingly or unknowingly, that seemed exciting but unnecessary given her means. It was like she craved instability because it seemed more interesting or impressive. The women she volunteered with were in no way as well off as she was, so maybe fabricating a sense of poverty was a way for her to feel like she fit in. But she would never truly know the harsh reality of real financial instability. The fabricated need for funding sparked a sense of ingenuity in Joe. In 1921, she had an idea. She and three of her friends from the service put their driving experience into use by starting a chauffeuring business. They called it the X-Garage, and it was a business owned and operated solely by women drivers and mechanics. These women had learned their skills in the war, and now they were putting them to use off the battlefield. They hauled fares in England and arranged driving tours of France, Belgium, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. The business was successful, continued for several years, and the women employed enjoyed an independence that not all women in the early 20th century would get to experience. During this time, it doesn't seem that Joe and her mother had much contact. The rift between the two was wide and it would never have a chance to mend. In 1921, a year after Joe's mother married Voronoff, and the day after his 11th ape testicle grafting surgery, she, too, died. According to Summerscale, Evelyn probably died from drug or alcohol abuse, but her death was ascribed to natural causes. She was only 48 years old. We don't have much on how Jo felt about her mother's death, but we do know how she felt about the way her mother died. Jo believed her mother's newest husband, who she had only been married to for one year, had murdered her. I mean, it is a little weird. His multi-millionaire wife died at 48 years old, a year after she married him and he did stand to inherit a huge fortune upon her death. Just saying, if I were on that case, I'd want to interview that guy. 
For the rest of her life, Joe would believe Boronoff gave her mother an overdose, then, as she put it, got his doctor friends to sign the death certificate, then proceeded to inherit a fortune. There is no surviving evidence to support Joe's suspicions of foul play, but Voronoff would be rich for the rest of his life. He would also contest Evelyn's will, and so would her second husband, Francis Francis, and in defense of her inheritance, so would Joe. Once, a friend of Joe's asked her if she thought any of her mother's husbands had married her for her money. She replied, I think all of them did. Evelyn's will stated that when Voronoff eventually died, Joe would then inherit all the income from the estate that she had left to Voronoff. She also left Joe all of her personal effects. Joe claimed that on top of her mother's personal effects, she should also receive the stock her mother had set aside as a marriage settlement, but both Evelyn's husbands said that since Joe's marriage had been annulled, she should get none of the stock she had been promised. Francis Francis, who had two children with Evelyn, also claimed his children were entitled to half her estate. It was a messy three-year fight. In the end, which occurred in 1924, Joe got her marriage settlement, and Voronoff would receive around 325000 or well over $4.5 million in today's money, per year for the rest of his life. After he finally kicked it, which would occur in 1951 after his life's work on ape testicles had been discredited, that yearly sum would be split between Joe and her two half-siblings. That same year, Joe also inherited a gigantic sum of money after her grandmother's will was finally settled. Now an heiress fully funded, Joe moved to a secluded estate in Hampshire, where she converted two army huts into a large bungalow. She called the place Botswick, naming it after her grandmother's side of the family. This all sounds very rugged but Joe had plenty of amenities, including multiple garages, a swimming pool, tennis court, guest houses, stables, gardens, and even a telephone. She also employed a large staff. She had a gorgeous ocean vista from her army tents, which included a spectacular view of the Isle of Wight, and the ocean was calling. Joe was 24 now. She had energy, a ridiculous amount of money, and she knew she loved two things, the ocean and machines that went fast. So she decided to use her money to build the fastest motorboat the world had ever seen, a hydroplane specifically. These boats, equipped with internal combustion engines, skimmed over the water at high speeds. Their sharp design, which allowed pressure from the water to propel them upwards, made them much faster than other boats, but also more dangerous. They were easily capsized, could spin out of control quickly, and were made of wood, which was constantly being hammered by the water. This weakened the wood and sometimes caused them to break apart. Joe loved how fast and dangerous they were. They were expensive to build, and only a few were commissioned each year. According to Summerscale, Joe entrusted the construction of hers to a boatyard on the Isle of Wight, headed by Samuel Saunders. 
He had a special way of constructing boat hulls by backing the wood with oiled fabric and sewing it all together with copper wire. Also at this time, Joe hired a man named Joe Harris, who had been working for Saunders to be her mechanic. He would join her in races and become a lifelong friend and a kind of father figure to Joe. This was another case in which Joe would take care of a friend for the rest of their life. Even after Joe Harris passed away many years later, Joe would continue to financially support his family. In 1925, the final product designed and built by Saunders Shipyard was a sleek 17-foot, 1.5-liter Z-class hydroplane. It was painted in a shimmering, glossy black and had a single white race stripe running down the side. Like all hydroplanes, it was made of wood and had a shallow hull. The wood was so thin it bulged as it hit the waves and even gave when you pushed on it. Saunders added dozens of pig bladders beneath the deck to give the boat extra buoyancy. Joe named her new hydroplane Gwen after a former lover. And like the love she was named for, Gwen soon capsized. This expensive, state-of-the-art boat sank. But it was soon brought up again. Joe decided to rename it by reversing the letters in its name, thus rechristening it Noog. And Noog would make Joe kind of famous. Joe had survived her childhood. She had survived the war. She was continuing to survive in a world that didn't like the fact that people like her existed. Yet here she was. And she wouldn't just survive, head down, eyes averted, ashamed of herself. Joe would thrive. She would break the mold that had been cast for her, too small to fit her heart and spirit inside. And she would emerge a fierce, bold person, unafraid to be who she was in a world that was so caught up in trying to put things into boxes. She had been born Marion Barbara Carstairs, daughter of Evelyn and a father she never knew. Now she was Joe and the world would soon know her as the fastest woman on water. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the first half of The Fastest Woman on Water, and I certainly hope you'll join me for part two. Huge shout out to my newest patron, Amy. Amy, thank you so much for your support. I'll be back again with more history in three weeks. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. The link for that is on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.